It's simple. Shipping, logistics, capacity, access. We are connecting America's heartland to the rest of the world. The Great Lakes. It's not just about shipping. It's a story about how we're constantly innovating, how we move our products around the world. Cleveland is a port city. We've always been a port city. This is Great Lakes Forward. Welcome to Great Lakes Forward, produced by the Port of Cleveland. My name is Jay Davis. I'm Vice President of External Affairs and Marketing here at the Port of Cleveland. And I want to welcome everyone to our inaugural podcast, where we will explore all aspects of shipping on the Great Lakes as it relates to Cleveland, Ohio, and across the Midwest region. This week's three things are 1. The Great Lakes Economic Forum Great Lakes Economic Forum was attended by over 300 attendees from throughout North America who are all stakeholders in economic development, logistics, trade, and shipping here on the Great Lakes. The forum highlighted the fact that there are about 237,000 jobs that are directly tied to Great Lakes shipping, and there are about $35 billion in annual economic activity directly tied to Great Lakes shipping as well. In Ohio, Great Lakes shipping alone represents close to 40,000 jobs and a close to $4 billion in annual economic activity. Overall, the Great Lakes Economic Forum was a great opportunity for stakeholders, landside, and in the water to come together and discuss ways in order to move the Great Lakes shipping industry forward, both from a public policy perspective and also in a public persona. So we look forward to continuing the work with the Great Lakes Economic Forum in order to highlight these issues, highlight what we need to do to get better from a public policy standpoint, and also highlight ways in which we can better serve our stakeholders here and abroad, which is everyday citizens and also the businesses and employers that rely upon the Great Lakes for their economic livelihood. Two, Infrastructure Week. The Great Lakes are essential to the prosperity of not just the Great Lakes region, but the entire country. Infrastructure across the United States is deteriorating. Typically, infrastructure is viewed as roads, bridges, and rail. But the unknown story is maritime. A prime example is right here at the Port of Cleveland, where over the next decade we'll be spending about $40 million in infrastructure upgrades alone. Infrastructure Week is a national undertaking that you often hear about in Washington, D.C. and public policy circles, mostly about funding infrastructure. Well, here at the Port of Cleveland, we work with the American Association of Port Authorities to bring folks together from around the country to discuss what exactly that looks like, but with a special focus on maritime, shipping, trade, and logistics issues. We discuss the importance of investing in infrastructure in order to make sure we can continue to compete internationally, but also grow jobs right here in the Great Lakes region through maritime cargo. So the Great Lakes and St. Lawrence Seaway which is comprised of the five Great Lakes and their connecting channels in the St. Lawrence River, serves the industrial and agricultural heartland of the U.S. and Canada. We want to definitely highlight that throughout our infrastructure week and the tour to Port of Cleveland and also the Cuyahoga River, in which we took port directors, staff from various ports throughout the Great Lakes and around the country, around to look at the infrastructure needs here, specifically at the Port of Cleveland. If this region, the Great Lakes region, was its own country, it would be the third largest economy in the world, with the combined GDP of more than $6 trillion. So just those numbers alone highlight the need and the importance of infrastructure. 
We're talking about a $6 trillion economy just confined within the Great Lakes region. Great Lakes Seaway shipping supports over 237,000 jobs and $35 billion in annual economic activity. So some of the key takeaways is that, again, given the amount of infrastructure that we have here in the Great Lakes, given the age of that infrastructure, on average, and also just the needs of the infrastructure coupled with the amount of money that this region represents as far as GDP, it's essential to the economies of both the U.S. and Canada and our individual states and provinces that we invest in the Great Lakes region, we invest in the infrastructure, and we continue to grow and support those jobs right here within the Great Lakes. Three, Flotsam and Jetsam. The Cuyahoga River is now celebrating 50 years of restoration since the last fire. An integral part of that has been the Port of Cleveland's workboats, Flotsam and Jetsam. Flotsam and Jetsam are tandem workboats that we have developed here at the Port of Cleveland through the hard work of some of our dedicated engineers, most notably Jim White, who retired from the Port of Cleveland in 2017. What Jim and his team developed has actively cleaned millions of tons of trash and other debris from the Cuyahoga River and Cleveland Harbor. These workboats have resulted in safer and more navigable river for our recreational boaters, kayakers, and students that train on the river and Cleveland Harbor. It also is safer and more navigable for our industrial boats and ships that are using the river every day and also the ships are traversing through Cleveland Harbor, especially within the break wall. This beautification has been a big boom for this part of downtown Cleveland, and more importantly, has helped dramatically with the improvement of water quality within the Cuyahoga River. Flotsam and Jetsam has helped the Port of Cleveland become a national model for ports working on sustainability and environmental cleanup efforts. We're proud of this, and we're moreover proud that in 2019, we have celebrated the rebirth of the Cuyahoga River 50 years after the last river fire. In 2017 and 2018 alone, Flotsam and Jetsam removed over 233,000 pounds of debris from the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland Harbor. Now, this debris is coming from both naturally occurring sources, flowing down from the Cuyahoga River National Valley in the form of logs and leaves and things of that nature, and also combined sewer outflows. The Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District is working to address that outflow issue. We do expect that as the years go by and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District's improvements and construction plans are born to bear, we will see a decrease in the CSO debris that is taken out. That's a good thing. We look forward to that and working with them to fill that gap right now. Flotsam and Jetsam filled 22 40-yard containers with large debris in 2017 and 30 containers in 2018. So again, working very hard to do this because there's definitely a need, and as a result, we're seeing very good water quality improvements. We are most proud that the river is vibrant again. Fish are living and thriving. People are able to use it. The water quality is dramatically better and is on the march to no longer being designated an area of concern. The Great Lakes. In the center of North America are the Great Lakes. Today we're here with Mike Madar, VP and GM of Arcelor Middle Steel Cleveland. Mike, welcome and thanks for coming and visit us here at Great Lakes Forward. I appreciate the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Great. So tell us a little bit about yourself, some of the day-to-day responsibilities that you are covering there as VP and GM for Arcelor Middle Cleveland, and a little bit more background about what led you to this role at Arcelor. And, 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 but first, before we do all that, explain Arcelor Middle for those who are not familiar. Sure, absolutely. 
ArcelorMittal is the uh, world's largest steelmaking company. We happen to have one plant in Cleveland. But if we really look worldwide and sort of start there, we have a presence, either sales or manufacturing operations in 60 countries. If we bring it a little bit closer to home and just get to the United States here, we have a total of 16 facilities in the U.S., which employ about 18,000 employees. If we bring it a little bit closer to home in the state of Ohio, we have a total of six facilities and almost 3,100 employees. I will say, starting with the global, a number of employees, we employ almost 209,000 people worldwide. So really a, a nice-sized company there. But finally, the important thing is getting it back to Cleveland here. And when we finally get on our home ground here, the Cleveland plant employs 1,900 very hardworking men and women that make uh, approximately 3.5 million tons of steel in Cleveland here every year something that most people don't know. And certainly in the name, uh, the name doesn't really tell you that this is a steel making company, but we've been making steel in this region here in the valley essentially for a little over 100 years. And it's really a great history and really want to be here to talk about the fact that this is a very important company here for the Cleveland region economically a huge support and we also realize how important we are to employment and just to the local community in the areas that we cover. I hear 3,100 people in the Cleveland area, 1,900 at the Arcelor Middle Cleveland plant alone. Correct, right. So what led you to the current role here at Arcelor Middle? Well, I have been a native Clevelander, Akroner, uh, Akroner, Akronite, whatever the right terminology would be. Um, we got to go to LeBron's uh, Instagram and, and see what he calls it. I, think I sort of live that. halfway between, so I can kind of claim it wherever it's convenient. But <laughs> uh, but my heart is really uh, into the, uh, the Cleveland area. I uh, graduated from Case Western Reserve with a material science and engineering degree many years ago. I won't tell you how many years ago, but my first and only job has been in the Cleveland plant. We were a much different company back then. Some of the predecessor companies, specifically LTV Steel, International Steel Group, and now ArcelorMittal were the former owners of the company. So I really fell in love with the plant. I started in a very technical and quality support role in the steel making area. So specifically, if anybody drives around the Cleveland area and they see the flame coming out of the stack, really the biggest candle in the Cleveland area, I think, that was the area that I worked for quite a few years. Moved around the plant and handled some of the final product and met with customers for a few years. And then ultimately had the opportunity to step into this role here about two years ago. And all of the experiences that I had growing up throughout the plant in the 28 years that I've been here have really worked wonders in being able to be very effective in this job. And I do have a love and feel that there's a dedication to the plant and to the people that work so hard to make our company as successful and our plan as successful as it is today. Well, I, I could tell you just from those folks that may not be familiar with Cleveland area or some of our manufacturing background who are listening to this podcast, Mike's story about being a local kid and going to college here and then working and spending most of his career in that plan is something that is actually not very odd for our area. I, for one, worked there myself in college. My father, grandfather, uncles, cousins, all worked there uh, from JNL, Republic Steel, LTV, ISG, and now Arcelor. So I could definitely talk from just my personal experience that every time we would ride by 77 and see the flame on or smell anything that looked like a flame, 
and my dad was like a overtime. And so uh, that's how I always had thought of it until my early 20s. And so it's good to see continued dedication here in the, in the Cleveland area of having Clevelanders here. And, and just talk about a little bit about that. Your career, is that still possible? Is that something that you still think that the community or folks should come here and try to pursue? Oh, that's a great question. And I really think the fact that people stay in jobs for more than three to four years anymore is an aberration. Most people's careers involve working at a company for three to four years. But I will certainly have to say in the steel plant, the, the family members that are involved there that have worked there for generations. I had a grandfather that came over from Czechoslovakia in the 40s, and this was his first job. Now, it skipped a generation. My father did something else here, but to be able to come in and, and have that connection here with the plant was outstanding. And we see that today, and you see it in the pride of the employees, and that pride is really what drives, I think, the performance that we see here in the plant. We really pride ourselves in the Cleveland plant with having some of the most efficient operation of any other plant within other steel companies in the world. Something that we look at are the number of people hours it takes to make a ton of steel. And for the Cleveland plant, that's about one people hour per ton of steel that we make. Wow. Whereas the industry average is about two, about twice that. And many, many years ago, you know, many years ago, 25, 26 years ago, there used to be in the neighborhood of 10,000 employees in the plant. And right now, as I mentioned already, about 1,900 men and women make roughly the same amount of steel. So that just really goes to the innovations and technology and the marrying of what people do and the technological advances to be able to make steel more efficiently at a lower cost, a higher quality, better quality, and deliver it on time for our customers. Thanks for that explanation, Mike. I think that's critical when we talk about workforce and things like that, of just uh, the impact. I do remember those days of 10,000 people. My dad worked a lot on a track game outside. As I got older and I was able to drive, I remember bringing down lunch in the middle of the night because he had forgot it and you can't let dad come home hungry. I haven't been able to get my kids to do that yet. Uh, well, we, One well, of we, these days. we live close uh, <laughs> over in the Buckeye Road neighborhood in oh, Cleveland. Yeah. And so that was something that I sort of just saw as this was a part of the community. This was just a part of what we did. I think the days of Geauga Lake and, and all these kind of things. And, Remember it well. And so I, I think uh, many folks from outside our area here at the Port of Cleveland, we work a lot with Arcelor to ensure that those jobs are protected, even going as far as to fight court battles in federal court to protect the Cuyahoga River shipping channel. We've led the fight to get Irishtown Bend, which is a hillside along the Cuyahoga River, which threatens the shipping channel. We've led the fight and the advocacy to get that funded at state and federal levels as well and raise money locally. We've had some successes there, but the big reason is because of what we do with you guys at the Cleveland Bulk Terminal. And so I just wanted you to talk about that because I think the larger economic impact is not just the jobs here, but also the larger economic impact of what you guys are using to make this steel and where this steel is going. Sure. We bring in, in the Cleveland plant, Roughly 5 million tons, 5 million tons of raw materials that we need to be able to make steel. And I can't that's stress... That's an annual number? That's an annual number, okay. exactly. And I can't stress enough how important the condition of the Cuyahoga River and the waterways and the lakes and all of the Great Lakes are to us being able to receive the raw materials that we need to make steel. 
And, you know, you touched on Irish Town Bend and the importance of bringing some necessary attention and funds and starting to raise funds to be able to secure that area. Because certainly as a anybody who's been in the Cleveland area that's been downtown has certainly seen how narrow and windy the Cuyahoga River is. Yes. That's a great recreational opportunity, but I think what a lot of people don't understand is how important it is to the commerce of businesses along that stretch. If you spend any time there and get an opportunity to see a six to 700 foot long oar carrier, oar boat, or oar ship trying to navigate a windy river, that is not an easy thing to do. And without it, I mean, the Cuyahoga River is our lifeline. We need the continued support and really appreciate the leadership that the port has taken on being an advocate for some of these key issues that are very important to us, but a lot of other businesses that also work on the and essentially make their living on the river as well. That's been very key to us, and you mentioned the Cleveland Bulk Terminal is an excellent example. We need to bring in larger ships into Lake Erie. We need to offload some of that material at the Cleveland Bulk Terminal and then reload it on smaller ships to be able to get it into the plant a couple miles up the Cuyahoga River. And in all of the work that the port has done to be able to continue to allow us to gain the support that we need to keep those channels open has been invaluable. As the Port of Cleveland, I could tell you this, we're going to continue to fight that fight with you guys. We understand what the steel mill's presence means to our area, just like many places in the Midwest, especially in the northern Midwest along the Great Lakes. These things are lifebloods for a lot of communities, just not only just a tax-based standpoint, but from economic development standpoint. We'll be here as partners whenever you guys need us. You knew that before this podcast, but we want to make it plain and simple for the rest of the world and all our viewers here. No, we, we really appreciate that. And like I said, the really some of the economic impact and, and we look at ourselves as a company and we partner with people that have a similar interest in the success of the steel plant and our business. And we contribute almost $319 million annually to a payroll, about $2.5 million in property taxes, and another $2.5 million to uh, use and duty taxes. But I think really the more staggering number is almost $1 billion in purchases from local businesses that enter directly into the economy, things that we have to purchase, raw materials, services to be able to, to do what we do. When we touched on the river and bringing in raw materials, can anybody imagine trucks hauling 5 million tons of material through the city streets over the course of a year? If you don't like the road construction now, wait until, you know, yeah. wait until we have something like that occur. But the waterways and the maritime support activities are critical to a lot of businesses on the Cuyahoga River. One thing we're seeing now with a lot of manufacturing companies around the country is just redefining what that means to be manufacturing. Because you hear things about next-gen manufacturing, technical manufacturing, or working in computer-aided manufacturing, things like that. One of the downtown billboards I'm seeing is redefining steel for our sir. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Sure. That's really an opportunity for us to remind the community that very large plant that sits between 490 and 480 and 77 and I-71 here has been in this location making steel for over 100 years and really communicate the fact that we have an important role to play in the financial and the economics of the area. We realize that as a very large company, both in footprint and in the economic standpoint, that we also have a responsibility and a goal to be a sustainable operation. Now, what does sustainable mean? Both from a, an environmental standpoint, from an economic standpoint, and from a new product standpoint. 
Certainly everybody is very focused on recycling and reusing materials. Steel is one of the most recycled materials in the world. And almost 90 to 95% of any product that has an iron atom in it can be remelted and reused and made into another product in the plant. So one of the ways that we are contributing to the whole effort of recyclability and lowering our carbon footprint and supporting that whole effort is the development of new grades of steel that allow our automotive customers to make the steel thinner, use it in applications, but not give up any strength. And that's obviously critically important here in car designs. You don't want to give up safety performance, but you certainly want to take weight out. If they take weight out, then we get better gas mileage. And the whole energy and carbon cycle here really takes care of itself. That's really one of the key areas that we support in addition to things that we started the podcast talking about, as developing a workforce here that is really set up and trained and able to do the things that we need to be successful here going forward. So that's contributing either grants and local funds to STEM education. Because certainly, as you can imagine, we use a lot of technical resources here in the plant. That's critical. Oh, absolutely. And and then being able to provide that opportunity to the uh, local community is important to us. Thanks for breaking that down. Now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do a small commercial about Arcelor here. Right. So, so tell us what, what makes you guys different from your competition and what kind of problems are you solving for your customers on a daily basis? I will certainly start by saying, well, I've praised a lot of our employees in the plant and the praise is definitely due. Without customers, we wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't be here today. We have a tremendous customer base, and we are really blessed in the Cleveland, Ohio area to have a lot of our customers as very local customers. So about 50% of the product that we make, at one point or another, somewhere in its life cycle, will end up into an automobile. And especially with the development of these advanced high-strength grades, even more and more of our higher percentage of our product is ending up in automobiles. And we happen to have a pretty healthy customer base here that supports the automotive customers where we simply ship them a coil, they might cut it, they might form it, they might shape it, and then ultimately supply that into uh, some automotive application. Fortunately, we can't do that development without one of the best research outfits here in any steel company in the world. We have about 11 research facilities throughout the world that sit there and cook up these different recipes and what we need to do and and then be able to help us to take it from the lab or a development setting and turn it into a process here that we can make for our customers. And I guess really lastly, just continuing to remain a key member of the community. And what I mean by that is, you know, supporting our STEM education opportunities here with the community, being a trusted user of land, water, and air and a great opportunity to really capitalize on that. And really the whole city was able to was the recent Cuyahoga 50 celebration, which was really celebrating the advent or the development of the EPA and the Clean Water Act. All important things, critically important items for the city. And we were happy to be part of supporting that whole effort here as well. I want to make sure that we're giving people view of the sort of the journey of making steel. Can you just explain how that happens? Sure. From getting in that ore to getting it through the plant to coming out. What's going to come out at the end and what's going to go in at the beginning? Well, I'll tell you what I hope goes in at the beginning and then what comes out at the other end. Okay. But, uh, but that's part of the challenge of the job and the fun part of the job. No, seriously, I touch on the fact that we start our process by bringing in our various raw materials, which include iron ore, normally comes from our Minnesota or Michigan mines. And we even move some material around from our Canadian outfits as well. 
That material will get charged into one of two blast furnaces we have, and the blast furnaces essentially melt the iron ore. The main goal of that process is to make it liquid, take it from a solid pellet to a molten iron, essentially. That's the first one of our main operations. We take that molten iron to the steel-making shop where we uh, pour it into a vessel, combine it with scrap. So approximately eight, we recycle about 800,000 tons of scrap a year. Or we're constantly bringing wow. in, it could be scrap cars, lights, fixtures, you name it, tubular product. Anything that has an, an iron atom in, as I mentioned earlier, we can remelt and reuse. At that point, we refine, we remove certain elements, we add certain elements back in, and then we cast it into a solid block of steel. That solid block of steel then goes to the third operation, the rolling mill, where we put it into a furnace, heat it back up, and the operation is about a quarter mile long where we start by rolling it through different sets of rolls to the final thickness that the customer orders, and then we coil it up. Our only product out of the Cleveland plant is what we call flat-rolled steel, and it comes in a coil. We'll see that on the back of trucks in the Cleveland area. That's not uncommon to see. We will load a fair amount by rail as well, and then we ship it out to our customer. The uh, advanced high-strength steel products that I talked about, we may do one additional step, which involves coating it with zinc. I remember the days as a kid driving around the Cleveland area and seeing a lot of rust buckets on the road. You just don't see that anymore because of the type of steel that we're making here, the advanced high-strength grades with zinc coating on there, which protects it from rusting. Unless you drive a really old car like I do, it's hard to see those on the street anymore. So, well, well, my first uh, my first car was a uh, 1988 Ford Taurus, and it was notoriously uh-huh. rusty. Uh, <laughs> and so, I, I guess it didn't have that uh, zinc coating from Arsler in it. But uh, now, cars since then haven't. And so, we appreciate that, Mike. Thank you. Uh, I I do too. So uh, <laughs> I really do. But uh, it, it's been. Uh, that is some of the, uh, the work that we are constantly doing with our research center and our customer base. And we really do have a very good partnership with a lot of our customers where we also go in and develop products with our automotive customers where they can say, hey, I have a problem. I need to take weight out here. I want this certain shape and body style. And they may not have the expertise on the steel side to be able to do that. So we'll support them with our research group and our product development group. Of course, we hope to be the supplier of choice uh, Mm -hmm. at the end of that exercise. But if it isn't, we've provided the opportunity in the way of some technical support here that might, you know, will certainly help them down the road. Here at this Cleveland plant, and I imagine maybe some others around the world, you're very intertwined with water delivery of products or as part of your supply chain, maritime delivery of your supply chain. So being that how closely we work with you guys at the Port of Cleveland, what are just some of the things you believe is going to be critical for port authorities or maritime operations as you guys are going forward with making your business decisions Mm -hmm. about which plants to invest in or making business decisions about which customers to go after? Sure. What are just some key components you feel is going to be important from the maritime standpoint that policymakers in maritime should be very cognizant of? Well, certainly we touched on some of the key items for us, anywhere from the start of Lake Erie to our blast furnace dock. Mm-hmm. That's about a five to six mile federally navigable channel here that requires, mm-hmm. and again, the uniqueness of the Cuyahoga River is it tends to fill up with sediment very quickly, yeah. especially when we get some of the, Heavy the uh, weather that we see around here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's critically important to keep that dredged on a routine basis. You know, what we pull out of there, certainly some of the things that the port has been able to do to extend the life of some of the disposal, the, the temporary confined disposal, disposal the, facilities. The CDF yeah. facilities has been huge for us. And if we can't dredge the river, we can't get those 5 million tons of raw materials into the plant to even start our process. There's just no other practical way to bring that amount of material into the plant. You know, normally on the other end of the operation where we're finally shipping a product out, we've had some opportunities in the past to ship via the Great Lakes out of the port. A lot of our customers, as I mentioned here, tend to be local, so it's more convenient mm-hmm. to uh, to load product on a truck and ship it there. But really supporting, I guess, to answer your question there directly, continuing to support the areas of the river, one, to keep it safe for people that both commercially and recreationally are using it is key. The support that we got and being able to get the local community and government officials rallied around Irish Town Bend. And that's been a, that is, looks like it's progressing in a very positive direction here. Yeah, we just received word that the U.S. Department of Transportation is going to award Irish Town Bend $9 million for that stabilization, for the bulkheading and stabilization of the hillside and we worked on that every since the day i took over this job at the port authority and moved here from dc we have been working on irish town bend and so it was a great day the last couple weeks to be able to bask in just that win for not only just that community on in the west 25th and river corridor but also all the companies that are dependent on that river being open and the navigation of that river being open to operate no, no doubt. That's uh, that's that's critical for us, and we certainly appreciate the port's leadership on pulling all the necessary parties together to make that move forward. And it's not only us. I'm sure anybody else that's along the river there would be saying the exact same thing here right now. It's very critical. As far as Great Lakes shipping, what do you guys see going forward as sort of the future expectations or the future growth, given that you're bringing iron ore from iron ranges in Minnesota, Mm. Michigan, probably going through the Sioux locks as well on a pretty regular basis. What kind of things are you guys looking forward to or hoping for as far as just innovations within the Great Lakes shipping industry? Well, I think really to keep one of the concerns, and while this is an outstanding engineering development and it's helped industry over the years, you touched on the Sioux locks. Mm-hmm. And with the couple locks that are there being the only way to get key raw materials through the Great Lakes system into the various plants is an area that needs to be a concern not only for the Cleveland area, but the federal government here in general. We could essentially shut down, wouldn't necessarily be our plant, but other plants here that rely on that system. So anything that involves either adding additional maritime paths here through the locks or Making sure that we provide the necessary funds to keep those open and reliable is looking outside, far outside the Cleveland area, but I know very well that problems in those areas will essentially could shut us down. You know, this is a Great Lakes Forward podcast, so, you know, although we're the Port of Cleveland and we're sort of spearheading this podcast, trust me, the issues we worry about are very much Great Lakes and system-wide. We definitely have an appreciation for the Sulox. We've advocated on behalf of getting those fully funded and, and looking at alternative redundancies as well. So we could definitely appreciate that. I think anybody in Maritime and the Great Lakes has a keen understanding of just our Sioux locks, but also when you look at the St. Lawrence Seaway. Absolutely. When you look at the St. Lawrence Seaway, there is about 15 locks between Niagara Falls and Montreal that enable ships to be able to traverse the St. Lawrence Seaway here at the Port of Cleveland. 
all of our international shipping is going through those locks, both import and export. So we are very, very familiar with just the need to make sure we're having on both sides of the border enough money being spent on redundancies, on maintenance, on upkeep and keeping those locks open as much as possible. And speaking of jobs, when you mentioned the Sioux Locks, Mike, Great Lakes Seaway is reporting that the Sioux Locks support about 123,000 jobs, about 22.5 billion in economic activity annually are passing through the locks and are impacted by just the locks maintenance and ability to be open and open in timely fashion and constantly throughout the shipping season. So just to reiterate how important that piece of infrastructure is and going forward looking at the Great Lakes. Absolutely. Wanted to make sure we mentioned that. Let's finish up here, just talk about community and how people can interact with Arcelor Middle. If you are talking to, say, just Bob and Betty, Cuyahoga County resident. I think I live next to them, too. Oh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, and uh, if, you're, if you're just talking to them and want them to interact with you guys, how will you guys best see that happening throughout either online or in the community or ways in which you guys brand or just interacting here in the community? Sure. Well, I, I think one of the, our key responsibilities in addition to making steel and being a positive contributor financially to the area is the need to be, and I mentioned this before, but sustainable. And that covers a lot of ground, right? And one of those key things are being very transparent and open with the community it's amazing. We have a call line that we promote. So if people have questions or concerns, they can call the uh, call line and well, we respond. What is that number? The number is 216-429-7300. And it provides an opportunity for the community that has any member of the local community that has any concerns or questions. It's amazing some of the questions we get. I have to chuckle at times with some of the ones we get. I go back to the very large candle. We'll get questions here. Well, the flame's a little bit higher today. Is that okay? Is there something wrong? Is something going well? It's actually fun to be able to respond back to people that don't understand the operation to educate them and also realize for us that they are paying attention and that what we do is important to them, especially if they're willing to pick up the phone, look up the number. And uh, now everybody has the number, which is good, but be able to pick up that phone and take the time to be able to uh, ask that question. And, you know, really recognizing or communicating that we do have a responsibility beyond just making steel to be able to support some of the different local programs here in STEM development with grants, doing days with middle schoolers here where we work on a project to get them interested in STEM technology is something that's a sustainable goal for us. We want to continue to be a welcome, you know, member in the, in the community. That's important for us. And then I touch on it a couple times, but being environmentally responsible. We have a very large footprint, as I've mentioned here. You can see that very quickly when you ride around the uh, plant here. We cover about 750 square acres. It's a very large footprint. Not only do we have that large physical presence, but we also have a lot of very big equipment that people just normally don't see. And the nature of our process here means that we need to be extra cautious in how we are treating our operation. We need to continue to be environmentally responsible. And a lot of the celebration that came out of the Cuyahoga 50, and it wasn't only us, but lots of other companies here that looked at where they've been 50 years ago and where they are today. And we continue to improve our process to make sure that we are more than just compliant with the regulations that we're held to, but we all have to live in the community as well. We want to do the best that we can and be responsible there. That's really some of the key actions for us. 
Got you, and I, I know you guys are sponsoring a water taxi right now downtown. Yeah, we've been able to do that. If you haven't had a chance to ride on that, it's a great opportunity to get from one side of the river to the other. So we've taken that opportunity to, and this is really the second year that we sponsored the water taxi. And it gives you a, a couple minutes where we have you captive to sort of look at a short video here on the steel industry and the company. That's certainly been important there. And for us to continue to innovate and develop new grades and be the leader in the world for products that ultimately, while maybe we don't directly influence the carbon footprint, we know that we're providing products to our customers that allow them to lower their carbon footprint. And then at some point, if we get that steel back, we can recycle it. And then we just continue that loop here as long as we can. Those are some of the key things there. Well, great. I uh, I think it's safe to say that we want you to send that steel back to Arsenal Mill Cleveland, and um, and that way we, like we can that get too. it. Yeah, we can get that loop back. Mike, are there any future projects that the public will find interesting that you want to mention here on this podcast? Yeah, as I mentioned, we're always looking for opportunities to improve either our carbon footprint, how we use electricity. We're very large, heavy industrial operation, as you can see. By adding some capital projects here, we have a couple things in the way of a new generator that we are currently having fabricated that will allow us to take some of the gas that our blast furnace uses that we might flare here today and use it to generate electricity that we don't have to go out and buy on the grid here today. With the idea that eventually at some point we will become almost 100% reliant on our own generation of electricity. There's some opportunities, certainly in these discussions here right now, to look at some wind sources for electrical generation as well. If we can supply the steel to support that, that would be wonderful. There's a perfect life cycle example right there. And then being able to more efficiently make steel, which involves investing in our current operations to make sure that they're more reliable. That's sort of the key for some of the key items there for us. So what I'm hearing there is sustainability, energy efficiency, and just physical improvements that you guys are going to be making in order to make this sure this plant runs for another 100 years. Well, and really the people there to make it happen. I mean, we don't have equipment that's unique to any other steelmaking operation. I think what really makes Cleveland successful and why we've been here for over 100 years are the 1,900 hardworking men and women here that put in the time every day and to work safely and environmentally conscious to be able to make steel and keep us viable. Well, great, Mike. I just want to say on behalf of the Port of Cleveland and Great Lakes Forward, thanks for coming and taking the time out to speak with us and give us a little insight about Arsler Middle and its impact here in Cleveland. And we look forward to continuing to work with you here at the port. But more importantly, we look forward to the work you and the employees there at Arsler Middle Cleveland are going to be doing to continue to make our region strong. Outstanding. Thank you for all your support. And uh, I'm glad to be here today. And feel free to learn more about Arsler Middle at Arsler Middle USA on Facebook and LinkedIn at Arsler Middle USA on Twitter, and our website is www.usa.arcelormiddle.com. We have a special guest who will be joining us. The Seaway system opened up over 60 years ago. We still have not realized its potential. It's the Chief Executive Officer of the Port of Cleveland, William D. Friedman. This is CEO's Corner. 
Will, welcome to Great Lakes Forward, and we look forward to having you on the show. Thanks, Jade. Great to join you here on Great Lakes Forward. Great, great. Now, Will, can you give me a brief explanation of the Port of Cleveland's mission for our listeners who do not know? Yeah, sure. So, I think the best way to describe our mission is to start with economic development, jobs, and driving our economy forward. That's what we do in the broadest sense here at the Port of Cleveland, and we do that through some competencies that we have at the port, some specialization, mostly by virtue of the statute that we operate under and what we've been doing since we were founded 51 years ago. Last year was our 50th anniversary. Of course, Maritime, we're a port authority, and a core part of our mission and how we achieve our mission is through facilitating maritime commerce. And then over the years, we've sort of layered on top of that other specialties, including financing development throughout our region and also working to solve problems related to our aging infrastructure and working with lots of partners to improve access to our waterfronts throughout Cleveland and Cuyahoga County and the experience that people have when they come down to our waterfronts. So you put all that together and those are the ways that we work to make our economy grow and help people find jobs. Great, great. So when you talk about economic activity, what does that mean for the people of Cleveland? Well, in terms of just the numbers, the data, the maritime sector alone, which means all the activities related to shipping in and out of Cleveland Harbor, related to shipyards where vessels are made or repaired, and related activities. If you put all that together, it's more than 20,000 jobs directly, and then jobs that are induced or the indirect jobs that are created. So that's a lot of jobs here in, in Cleveland and in the county, and there's a lot of income associated with those jobs. When the economists add the numbers up, it's $1.4 billion in annual personal earnings, paychecks paid to people here in the county. And it's $140 million in taxes that are collected by state and local governments that then they can use to provide services to citizens. So that's still a very significant part of the overall economic profile of our county and our region. Thanks for explaining that, Wilkes. I think many people forget that Cleveland was a port city, is a port city. It was founded as a port, and we still operate a port in pretty much the same location as the original ports here at Cleveland. So carrying on tradition here at the Port of Cleveland and into the Great Lakes as we move forward. We touched a little bit on job creation. Could you just go back through those numbers a little bit as far as what exact job creation are we talking about with regards to impact here at the Port of Cleveland? And the reason I ask that because look at throughout the Great Lakes, there are going to be similar stories to ours, at least on the American side for sure, and also on the Canadian side of just the larger GDP of this region and with terms of cargo and the jobs provided and family supported. So could you go in a little bit more about the Port of Cleveland specific job impacts. If you add up the GDP of the eight states and the two Canadian provinces that border the Great Lakes, it's now about a $6 trillion economy, which would be, if it was a standalone country, the third largest economy in the world, third largest country in the world behind only the U.S. and China. That's really important because that's the market we can serve here from Cleveland. We're right in the heart of all that. And so as you zero in on Cleveland or Detroit or Chicago, Northwest Indiana, up into Canada, into Hamilton or Toronto, et cetera, maritime is still 
a driver for commerce, for companies that need international transportation by water, which is the most economical and the most green mode of transportation. And so when you start looking very closely at all the jobs that are in the supply chain, logistics side, trucking jobs, railroad jobs, warehouse jobs, jobs on our docks, longshore workers, shipyards, etc., and you add up all those jobs and all of the personal earnings, all of the business revenue that those companies generate, and then you start looking at the respending. You get a paycheck, and you go out and you spend a portion of your paycheck locally. That supports other businesses and other people. Companies like ArcelorMittal, the integrated steel mill here in Cleveland, supports an enormous ecosystem of other companies, as well as, of course, you know, a very large payroll to their employees who then go out and spend. So it creates this ripple effect through the whole economy, and that's how you get to using the multipliers that are well-established. That's how you get to 20,000 jobs here locally in our community, all dependent on the water and on shipping in and out through Great Lakes and Cleveland Harbor. So just to kind of repeat the numbers from the last time the port conducted an economic impact analysis, 20,000 jobs and $1.4 billion in personal income, $140 million in state and local taxes, and I believe about a billion dollars in business revenue. That's the picture here locally. It's not just quantity, it's quality. These are good jobs. These are jobs where you can raise a family and have a good quality of life. These are not entry-level food service minimum wage or just above minimum wage. These are jobs with benefits and relatively good pay. Now, my view is that while we are diversifying our economy here, like every metropolitan area is looking to diversify into tech and into the sectors that are growing, our legacy industries that depend on maritime are still really important to us, like our steel mill and like companies that are in the construction materials business or the salt mine here that we have in Cleveland, which many people don't realize. We have an enormous salt mine underneath Lake Erie, and a lot of that salt is then loaded onto ships and transported to cities all around the Great Lakes Basin. You know, all of that is what makes Cleveland, Cleveland, as you mentioned, we were founded as a port. And, you know, if you think about it, most of the places around the world that grow, sort of the major growth urban areas globally, vast majority of them are, are port cities. And that's no accident. There are certainly some places that are not, that for other reasons have prospered over the years. But it still matters if you have that connection to the sea and to the world shipping lanes. And we have that here in Cleveland and Indianapolis and Columbus and Denver, Colorado don't have those. And so we need to make sure we're taking advantage of what we have here, thanks to the St. Lawrence Seaway and Mother Nature with the Great Lakes. So, Will, since you mentioned the St. Lawrence River, and for those folks that are listening to us and may not understand, how do you get big ships to Cleveland? We're so far from the coast. Can you just go through that process for those who may not be well-versed in that process? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I get that question a lot, and it's a very interesting story for those who like to talk about infrastructure. So the Great Lakes are higher than sea level, and in some places, as that water flows downhill to get to the ocean from the Great Lakes through the Niagara River and then the St. Lawrence River, it will either flow downhill too quickly for navigation. There may be sections that have rapids, and there are sections that are obviously impassable, like Niagara Falls. Over really hundreds of years, a bunch of people with a lot of ingenuity devised a series of channels, man-made channels, to bypass the sections of the Niagara River and the St. Lawrence River, which are not navigable. And they put a series of locks into those sections, 
which are really, you can think of them like elevators for ships. They allow ships to go up and down vertically. And so there are 15 locks that make up what's called the St. Lawrence Seaway. And ships are able to transit either upbound or, or downbound through those locks and through those connecting channels and get around those places in the rivers which are not passable. And that allows for 750 feet long ocean-going vessels to come all the way into the Great Lakes, 2,300 miles, all the way to the westernmost terminus of the whole system, which is Duluth, Minnesota, Superior, Wisconsin. And that's pretty amazing. I mean, when you see an ocean-going ship that far inland, it just seems kind of like, wow, you know, how did, how did this happen? Um, but it's very commonplace now. The St. Lawrence Seaway opened officially in 1959. It was a joint project of the United States and the Canadian government. More of the seaway sits on the Canadian side of the border. If you look at a map, you can see that the ships are constantly going back and forth across the U.S.-Canadian border as they come through the system and into the Great Lakes. But more of it happens to be on the Canadian side. So the Canadians built 13 locks and the U.S. built two locks. And to this day, there are still two separate agencies within each federal government that run those locks and run the system, although they work very closely together. Great. Thanks for pointing that out, Will. I think uh, many folks that may not come to the Midwest often, uh, one thing that people land here, I hear people when they land in Chicago, I hear people when they land in Milwaukee or Cleveland, just like, oh, I didn't know Lake Erie or Lake Michigan or Huron or anything was that big. Right. I had no clue. They thought of it as a lake with some water that supported enough water for people to drink, but not this large, huge natural resource that is, you know, one of the wonders of the world. So I'm glad we're able to use it here at the Port of Cleveland throughout the Great Lakes. And speaking of, of using the lakes, going forward, if you were to have your vision play out of what you see the future of the economics of the Port of Cleveland, the Great Lakes region, but more importantly, Northeast Ohio and how the Port of Cleveland plays in that role. What does that future look like? Well, I think despite the fact that the seaway system, as we know it, the modern system opened up in 1959, 60 years ago this year, we still have not really realized its potential. In the run-up to the construction, the approval, and then the opening of the seaway, People started calling the Great Lakes the fourth coast. What they meant by that was, you know, we were going to have this new coastline, a very, very large coastline on the northern border of the United States that could serve just like the East Coast, the Gulf Coast, or the West Coast, accessible to ocean-going ships. And we really haven't fully taken advantage of that capability. We still have it, and we need to work together, all of us, all the stakeholders, the states, cities, private industry, nonprofits, our port authorities, the companies that ship, the companies that carry the goods in the ships, and reform, change some of the management practices and some of the rules and regulations and some of the ways we administer this whole system without going into too much detail. It's too cumbersome today. It is too much of a barrier to ship owners worldwide who can take their ships anywhere. And there's a saying in our business that cargo follows the path of least resistance, and it's true. And there's too much resistance, there's too much friction today, in my opinion, in our system. We can remove it. There's no question that a lot of it can be eliminated, and we can make use of our system much more friendly, much smoother, and not only take cost out, but take delay out, take uncertainty out, because anybody in the shipping business can tell you that uncertainty, delay, those things are the kiss of death. So 
if we can do that successfully together, and it will require action primarily by the two federal governments of Canada and the U.S., well, then we can really open up this fourth coast and we can create a system that is relevant to a much larger number of, we call them shippers in the industry, but companies that are moving goods of all kinds back and forth between the U.S. and Europe and points beyond. And that's an enormous market available to us. We've studied it, we know it, and we don't even want to capture that much of it. We don't need to. We can sort of skim the cream off the top of the market and serve those customers that we're best able to serve here and really give them better routing to the world. And that means they can save money, they can serve their customers better, and then that'll lead them to invest more here in the Cleveland area, greater Cleveland area, Northeast Ohio, all throughout Ohio, and then they hire more people. And so that's the whole chain of events here is make the seaway work better, diversify the cargo base. For those who probably don't think about these things, we really serve a fairly narrow niche right now. They're good customers and they've used this system for years. We want to continue to serve them, but it's just a sliver of what's available out there as far as what's moving back and forth, especially if you look at containerized movements of cargo. That's where you sort of capture everything Almost everything that fits today is moved in a shipping container. We've all seen them. They look like the back of a truck. They're everywhere. They're just ubiquitous. And if we can really break into the container shipping business and do that in a sustainable way and serve sort of our natural share of the market, then that's going to make those economic impact numbers that we were talking about earlier. It'll really drive those numbers up. There's a lot of value added associated with moving containers in distribution and logistics and throughout the whole value chain. And if you look at places like Savannah, Georgia, for example, 25, 30 years ago, Savannah was pretty sleepy. They had a nice little port, wasn't doing all that much business. And since then, that port has just boom. It has been the fastest growing port for decades. The state of Georgia has just poured resources into its development. They've had a very effective strategy where they developed land around the port so that the big importers and exporters could put their distribution centers, their import distribution centers right there. And it has become probably the number one driver of the state economy in Georgia. Certainly Atlanta, Hartsfield Airport, one of the largest airports in the world, and the Georgia Ports Authority, Savannah, that's what people talk about. And that's what everyone cares about. And we can have that same impact here not as big. We're not on the coast. We don't ever expect to be that big. But even though scaled down somewhat, we can still have a really, really high impact on our economy. Thanks, Will. Going forward, as we look into new businesses, new opportunities for the Great Lakes to grow cargo, as you just mentioned, as far as just making sure we're getting the things we should be in streamlining regulations, When you hear things about the Lake Erie Energy Development Corporation and windmills and things like that on the lake and the potential for renewable energy and things like that, what kind of impact do you think that will have on shipping, technologies, jobs, things like that here in the Great Lakes and specifically in Cleveland? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up, Jade. I think there's a really strong parallel between the potential for offshore wind energy in Lake Erie kind of what I just described with shipping. If we can ratchet up shipping, I mean, I really believe it's going to be something that gives us competitive advantage and translates into jobs. Same with offshore wind energy. So just to unpack that a little bit for listeners, most of us have seen windmills on land. We've seen wind turbines at land-based wind farms. We know that along with solar, 
wind is every day capturing a larger share of where our energy comes from. In Europe, they've been the leader in offshore wind, and they've now have, over the last probably 25 years or so, they've now installed more than 4,500 wind turbines out in mostly the North Atlantic, but some in the Baltic. And those turbines produce 20 gigawatts of power, which is enough to power about 15 million homes. Probably you could power most of Holland, a large country, fairly large country, from those offshore wind installations. And it's growing. It's going to get a lot bigger. Everywhere there's a wind resource offshore globally, we're going to see wind turbines. There's just no question about it because we've reached that tipping point where you can install those turbines and you can generate electricity at a competitive price. So it's going to happen. That means private dollars are flowing in. We have that opportunity right here, and we have a lot of advantages right here in Lake Erie offshore from Cleveland. We have lots of wind. There's a great wind resource out there available to us that can generate a tremendous amount of energy for us. We have really good connections on the shore side to essentially sort of plug in those cables from those wind turbines without making uh, huge investments. And so you can get right into the, the uh, power can go right into the grid. And we have a relatively shallow lake with conditions on the lake bed that are pretty favorable for an installation of these wind turbines. Keeps the cost down. And then we have a lot of companies here, manufacturing companies here in our region that already make components for this industry, or they are already tooled up and have the R&D capability to get into that sector pretty fast. So we have all the ingredients. All we need is to get our pilot project, which is called Project Icebreaker, approved and fully funded, and we can build it and prove it out. And then what I believe will happen is then we'll see larger scale more utility-scale projects in Lake Erie, assuming it meets all the environmental standards, which through exhaustive review so far, I believe it will be the case. So it'll do a number of things. It'll put us on the map globally as far as a leader in offshore wind and renewable energy. It'll make our area in northeast Ohio less dependent on other sources of energy, which are in decline, like coal-fired power, as we all know, and it will drive jobs in the supply chain on the side where you're making these components, and we can make them for our own demand driven here in Lake Erie, throughout the Great Lakes, and then worldwide. We, you know, we can be a supplier worldwide, and we can get those parts out, even if they're large, because we have access to a port here in Cleveland where we could load a very large nacelle or a blade for a wind turbine, which is coming in close to our ports. Yeah, I'm extremely bullish on the potential for offshore wind. Just a huge proponent of let's get this pilot project built. We've been moving in that direction for over 10 years. And if we don't seize the day, if we don't do it now, I think we're going to look back and we're really going to regret not stepping up when we had the opportunity. Well, Will, I want to thank you for coming out and sharing with CEO Corner. And uh, again, appreciate your leadership here at the Port of Cleveland and look forward to having you back on Great Lakes Forward. Great to do it, Jade. Thanks. The Great Lakes. In the center of North America are the Great Lakes. The Port of Cleveland is one of the largest ports on the Great Lakes. Over 20,000 jobs and $3.5 billion in annual economic activity are tied to roughly 13 million tons of cargo that move through Cleveland Harbor each year. The Port of Cleveland is the only local government agency whose sole mission is to spur job creation and economic vitality in Cuyahoga County and Northeast Ohio. The Port is the economic engine for the community, a key to Northeast Ohio's global competitiveness, and a crucial partner in building Cuyahoga County's future. Please follow us on Facebook, 
Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at, at Porter Cleveland. And on LinkedIn, you can find us at our official name, which is the Cleveland Cuyahoga County Port Authority. Follow us there and also subscribe to this podcast. Technical support and audio production provided by Shark and Minnow. Great Lakes Forward is sponsored by Logistech, the terminal operator of the Port of Cleveland.